John 15, where Paul read for us earlier. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. And by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciple, plural, disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Let's go back to chapter 14. As we look at um, this chapter Ending, let's remember that um, John's gospel here is divided into five different sections. Uh, We're in the fourth section this morning, chapters 13 through 17, and we made the point that he's done speaking now to the multitudes. And he is now dealing just with his disciples. Um, They have rejected him. And so chapters 13 through 17 is very, very personal as he is speaking now to them. And uh, one of the last uh, things we read here um, as we go from 13 is, but that the world may know that I love the Father as the Father gave me commandments to do, so do I arise and let us go from here. So evidently, John 15 is um, taking place after Jesus and the disciples leave the upper room. They were in the upper room, but now they're going where they usually spend the evening. Uh, My personal feeling on this is that they would go down and then they'd hit what we call the, the, the Kidron Valley. And then as you start to go up the hill of the Mount of Olives, you would uh, go through where um, the Lord would stay. It was, it was known to the disciples. Judas, when he betrayed the, the Lord, he knew exactly where the spot was. And he led them to where they usually stayed. So as we pick it up, we went through this uh, verse by verse on Wednesday evening. Um, the Lord says, Arise, let us go from here. And um, he is basically giving this study either on the way to where they would be staying or he gave it to them when they arrived. In verse one, we have, I am the vine. Now, we've told you that John's gospel is different. And he does not write like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but he writes around seven miracles First one was John 2, turning water into wine, and seven I am statements. 
As you look at verse one, I am the true vine, this will be the seventh of the seven I am statements. If you look back at chapter um, 14 and look at verse six, we have the sixth I am statement. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So now that we've gotten to this chapter, this is the final I am statement that is going to be read. Um, And as we look at uh, that first part here, that would be 1A, um, he goes on to say, after the I am, I am the true vine. And it actually has a contrast. It's gonna be contrasted against the nation of Israel, as I will show you in a minute. Uh, But the Greek word here, uh, Eli Thionis, which means genuine, a thing can be true as over against error or falsehood, or a thing can be true over against that which is counterfeit. The latter is the way it is used here. Uh, We have had this word used in the same way previously um, in the Gospel of John. John the Baptist, for instance, was reflecting the light. But Jesus Christ was the light himself. Moses gave bread in the wilderness, but then Jesus said that he was the true bread. That was an illustration of the real thing that was coming. So here Jesus is saying, I am the true vine, the genuine vine, contrasted with what? Well, if you're taking notes in the Old Testament, it is clear, and I'll give you the scriptures, you can write them down if you want to, that the vine symbolized the nation Israel is apparent from the following verses. And I'm quoting now Psalm 80, verses eight and nine, where it says, thou Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou had prepared us room before it and didst cause it to take deep root and it filled the land. That's Psalm 88 and 9. Then um, we read, Now I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. That's Isaiah 5. Yet I planted thee a noble vine, holy Right seed, how then art thou turned into a degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Jeremiah 2.21. Israel is an empty vine. It brings forth fruit unto himself. Hosea 10.1. It is clear that the vine here is a picture of the nation of Israel. Now, imagine him making this statement that he's about to make. And um, our Lord is saying one of the most revolutionary things that these men understood. What do you mean the vine? We're the vine. He's talking to Jewish people. And now he's saying, no, you're not. 
you were planted to bring forth fruit, but you didn't bring forth the fruit because you couldn't. You were under the law. And what is the revelation of, of the New Testament and, uh, to any Jewish person was, of course, the law. But we're told the law was nothing more than a schoolmaster uh, holding a mirror up in front of our face saying you're guilty and you can't keep it. So I wanted fruit, but it was impossible for you to bring forth the fruit that I wanted because I'm not here yet. <laughs> and so what he's saying is very, very revolutionary. When he says, I am the vine, they're thinking, no, you're not, we are. It's clear in the Old Testament that the vine is Israel. True. But you never produce what I created you for. And as a matter of fact, you can't without me. That's why Jesus said, don't think I've come to destroy the law. I have not. I haven't come to destroy it. Nothing wrong with the law. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The problem is we can't do it until now. Now the Lord is going to reveal to something that could only be accomplished after he comes. So when he says, I am the true vine, it's in contrast to what they're thinking, Old Testament, the vine that was supposed to bring forth fruit but wasn't able to do so, might I add, impossible to do so. And so when we read, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Um, uh, we go on to verse two, then he describes every branch in me, so we're not the vine, we're the branches connected to the vine. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that can he even bring forth more fruit. We have two thoughts going on here. And um, some of you might be saying he, he, he takes it away and uh, sounds, it could sound like you lose your salvation here, but let's keep it in context. Context is everything. So we're not talking about salvation. No, remember the passage is not talking about salvation, but about fruit bearing. It is talking about that which is the result of being saved. Now works don't save me, but when I get saved, there's things that we want to do. Now, if you just turn and look at verse six real quick. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, again, we're not talking about salvation issue here, we're talking about fruit. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. As we look at the first part of this, Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And let's just stop there. That's the first part of it. And I personally believe that what he is speaking of here, let me use a comparison. Go back to chapter 14, verse 12. And the Lord is saying to Philip, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me the works that I do. So now we're, we're talking about works that we do as believers. The works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these, uh, he will do because I go to my father. I mean, Peter, his first crack at preaching the gospel, 3,000 people got saved. And um, these mighty works, I believe that'll be attributed uh, in some way 
the apostles' works, the things that they did. The scriptures talk about the judgment seat of Christ, and I think that's what we have in view here. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter three, and we'll look at the judgment seat of Christ and works being judged. There's another judgment called the great white throne judgment, and that is not for believers, that's for non-believers, and they'll be judged according to their, their works. But it's apart from the works that we um, are doing as believers. So it's really a motive when we do our works, why we do what we do. We're told, when you do a good work, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing because your heavenly Father, who sees in secret, will reward you openly. But if you do your good works before men, well, you got your reward already. And so if you're looking at uh, 1 Corinthians 3, let's pick it up in verse 11. And he's talking here about uh, when our works will be judged. First of all, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw. So we have different materials uh, spoken of. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will declare it. We're told in Matthew 7, judge not to judge. Don't judge anything before the time. And then at the same time, it says the spiritual man judges all things. How are we to know false doctrine against true doctrine unless we use discerning judgment? So what we're talking about here and says don't judge lest you be judged carries with the idea that I don't know the motive of Tim's heart, why he does what he does. And uh, I shouldn't judge him because I can't see his heart. But who can? Only the Lord knows why we do what we do. And that's why all judgment is gonna be given to the Son. Verse 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. What fire? The all-seeing, all-knowing God who knows the motive of the heart. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. So imagine eyeball to eyeball at the judgment seat of Christ and he knows why you've done anything in his name. He knows the motive. He knows that that burning light that just sees right through you. One of the things we're learning as we, as we uh, I've been making the point, as we've been teaching through the Gospel of John, whenever there's a one-on-one with a person, what does he do? He tells that person something about himself that only that person knows. And it's without exception. And it's something only the Lord can do. Good place for an amen. <laughs> so the idea here, the all seeing the fire of penetrating, um, it's actually um, revealing uh, why we do what we do. Now, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. In other words, he did it for the wrong reason. But he himself will be saved yet as though through fire. So it's not a salvation issue. 
that we're talking about in John 15. We're talking about our fruits and our works um, being burned. And this, when it talks about being burned, here's a guy um, who he's, he's saved, but he did absolutely nothing for the kingdom. He lived for himself, and as a result, when he was taken home, he didn't have anything to show for his time that he spent here on earth. I know I, I quote this all the time, but I mean, if there's one thing that summarizes everything we're saying this morning, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Everything else is gone. So the incentive, this is, can be an incentive-type motivation Bible study to encourage you to know that your labor, what does it say, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. But everything else is, <laughs> if it's not in the Lord. Do you not know that, oh, well, we, we just need to go through 15. So some people's works are precious gems, and uh, fire does not destroy them. Matter of fact, gold, what does it do with gold? What does fire do to gold? It purifies it, and it makes it more pure. And that's the idea here, but the ones, let's go, I think we can go back to, uh, let's see, First Corinthians 13. Let's go back to John 15. That's the first part of it. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And, and uh, if you tie it in with verse 6, uh, those things are, that are taken away are burned. But again, we're not talking salvation. We're talking just your works. And then he says, in every branch that does bear fruit, now we're talking about the precious stones, that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may be more, bring forth more fruit to be. Now every branch that bears fruit, he purges it that it may bring forth more fruit. Uh, the Greek word here is kathiero, which means to cleanse. So a better interpretation for pruning is actually cleansing. Some people consider the pruning, the purging to be pruning, and that is true also, but it really means to cleanse. So we can, I wouldn't be dogmatic on it, not excluding every branch that produces fruit, he prunes it. We understand the concept. Anybody's got an apple orchard understands that. You prune out your tree so you can get more fruit. But the, but the Greek word here carries with it the idea of cleansing. And it just, it just makes sense. Because just think about it, the Christian life. And we were talking with, Joshua and I were talking to a gal this week about this process. Um, um, and when you're brand new and you're born again and you're just trying to figure all this stuff out and you go through a trial, well, I don't know, is this normal? Does, am I supposed to have this happening to me? And the best we could do is just tell her she was normal and as a, as a newborn believer, just desire the milk of the word. Well, that's fine for baby Christians, but in Hebrews chapter six, Paul's reproving them. He says, you, you guys are all growing up. You're 30 years old in the Lord and you're still talking about the elementary principles, the ABCs. He says, put those things aside and let's get into the milk of the word. So there's a process that we go through from being a baby to maturing. We call it being sanctified. 
And it's a cleansing process. And you become, uh, the, the, here's the irony of all this, you become cleaner as the process of cleansing is taking place, but the irony of what I just said is Paul is the best example. I mean, just think of the works that Paul did and the things that he suffered and all the stuff that he went through. I mean, Paul's coming to town, get the jail ready because <laughs> that's where he's gonna end up. He got beat up wherever he went. Um, don't, his prophet, prophet came up to him and said, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. Chains are waiting for you there. He says, why are you breaking my heart? I'm ready to die for the Lord. And having said all that and tried to compare yourself to the Apostle Paul, what does he say about his own self-evaluation? I am the chiefest of sinners. Why would he say something like that? Because he's been cleansed so much, yet it is nothing compared to being in the presence of a holy God. And as you get closer to the Lord, you become painfully aware just what a wretch you really are. And those aren't my words, those are all Paul's words after he says the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I shouldn't do, I do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to save me from this? I thank God. That's why we had communion this morning. Apart from the finished work of what he did, we don't stand a chance. And he was all, the older you get, the all too well where you are of that reality, that truth. And you just become more, more grateful for his grace. And I can't say everything I just said without quoting the first verse of Romans 8, verse 1, where he says, now, therefore, good place for a therefore. Therefore, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. There's a lot of times you want to give yourself a good talking to, or the devil's sitting on your shoulder and telling you just what a wretch you really are. You should write about that one. And um, the Lord said, no, you can't go there. Because when you go there and condemn yourself for something you do, especially if you confess it as a sin already, then you're undermining the very work of the cross. So there can't be any condemnation. Every time I tell a story, when I was in Bible school, <laughs> I can't remember the guy's name, but he would fall into condemnation so many times, and he'd been talked to so many times that Romans 8 is in the Bible, 8-1, read it, there is no, but he wouldn't listen to it. So we began to have fun with him. And when he'd fall into condemnation, we'd, we'd do this. Let's say his name was John. John, our contestant today, let's play condemnation, our first um, person in this morning is John here. John, we're playing condemnation again. And yes, we were poking at him, but he finally got the point because some ways you just have to be tactful in different ways. For Sometimes you hit a guy across the side of the head and he's still not getting it, so I think he finally got it. What's so great about that? It sets you free. It sets you free. When Jesus said, you'll know the truth and it'll set you free, yeah, you're a wretch, so am I. And um, as we get cleansed in the cleansing process, we become more like him. But you gotta understand, my friends, that this is normal. And you can tell the devil just where to go when he's whispering in your ear, what kind of Christian do you think you are? Look at what you've done. And you call yourself a Christian. And um, 
I say, I sure can. By the blood of the lamb, there's no condemnation. And this is where it's important to put the feelings aside because we walk by faith and not by feelings. Good place for an amen. No condemnation. Yeah, but I feel condemned. I don't care how you feel. My heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? It's tricky. Paul says, I don't even judge myself. My flesh is so tricky, I'm not even gonna judge myself. I'll let the Lord do that. And I'm really getting sidetracked. (laughs) To be, first of all, what is the fruit? We've made it all the way to verse two so far this morning, second half. And every branch that bears fruity prunes and it bears more fruit. Well, first of all, what is the fruit? I do not believe that the fruit mentioned here refers to soul winning. So many people seem to think. Uh, I believe soul winning is a byproduct, but not the fruit itself. Please turn with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, picking it up in verse 22. Galatians 5.22 says, but the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is love. Let me read that again. This is what it doesn't say. But the fruits, plural, is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Again, such there's no law. No. The fruit, singular, of the Holy Spirit is love. Now, the byproducts of love are revealed to us. There will be joy. You'll have peace, what we talked about last week. You'll become much more patient with people, long-suffering. You'll be kinder goodness and faithfulness. You'll take on more of a gentle spirit. You'll be able to have self-control where you had done in the past. Against such, there is no law. When you abide in the vine, you produce fruit, but the fruit is love and the byproducts are these attributes that are really what the Lord is all about. In the, in the early days in the Jesus movement, we had a saying, and went like this, don't tell us how much you know about Jesus, but show us how much like Jesus you are. There was a lot of people that talked about Jesus, but there wasn't too many people that you could look at, and you go, no, um, I'll use Chuck. It's just his demeanor. It was just his calmness that he had in that crazy Chuck grin that, that showed um, Jesus. And he didn't have any hair, so I figured he doesn't look like Jesus because <laughs> he's bald. <laughs> and I always figured that the Lord had long hair and a beard because they pulled out his beard when they were torturing him. But I have to contrast that today with Christian TV programming. And um, try this sometimes. Let the guy up there by himself and just turn the volume off. Just turn it and just watch him. And I I look at these guys and I see them prancing and dancing and doing crazy stuff. 
And I go, who would ever want to be like that? But when I looked at Chuck, there was something there, and he got, oh, he's got something. He knows his God. I can see it in the way he handles himself. And so what we have here, don't tell us how much you know about the Lord. Show, us, show me how much like Jesus you actually are. Well, we made it all the way to verse three. Let's go back to chapter 15 where we read, you, all, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. If you go back to chapter 13, verse 10, the Lord is giving an example of washing the disciples' feet. Notice what he says to Peter in verse 10. He said, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are all clean, but not all of you. So he's talking about Judas. So when he, we read in verse three here, you are already clean. Again, this is a part of the process of being washed on a regular basis. Um, I'm gonna have you keep your finger here because we're gonna be coming right back to it, but I'd like you to turn to the book of Ephesians chapter five, give you a moment to get there. And the idea here is being washed. In verse 26 of Ephesians 5, it's referring to wedding vows, and I'll come back to that. He's talking about a husband and wife relationship. And it says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by how? By the word. In other words, you're being washed this morning. Why? Because we're simply teaching through the gospel of John. And if you do that, over time, there is a cleansing process that takes place. And if it's ongoing, the cleansing is continual. Revelation 1, 5. And it says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So we're washed by the reading of the word. There's a cleansing effect that takes place. But also, again, what we commemorated in communion this morning. Now, again, I told you, I want you to keep your finger right here because we're coming right back, but go back to 1 Corinthians 15, and let's read verses four and five. He says, abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. All right, let's go back to Ephesians chapter five. And I want to put the wedding verses in in front of this. Can't do anything without me. In verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. 
Let me just stop there. Every wedding I've ever done, um, I tell the gals, there's only one thing the scriptures has to say for you to do. That's 22 through 24. And then I look at the guy, and I says, there's only one thing that the Lord's asking you to do, and that is to love your wife just like Jesus loved the church. And then I look him right in the eye and I say, you realize that's impossible to do, don't you? It's telling you to love as God loves. I said, that's impossible. But we have a saying at Calvary. And that saying is God's commandments are God's enablements. In other words, he's not gonna tell you to do something without giving you the ability to do it. Now, without him, what can you do? Nothing. So the importance of not being unequally yoked, there's a reason for that, or a believer marrying an unbeliever. One person can perform their part because they're abiding in the vine. It's not them that's doing the work. We're simply walking and talking with Jesus. And because he now is in us, then his commandment is to love as he loved. Now it's possible. The impossible now becomes possible. Why? Because it's not me. It's Christ who lives through me. And um, I tell the guy, you realize that that's impossible to do, but yet, what can I say? This is what the scriptures tell us in a Christian marriage. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And I tell the gals, it's not in your nature to be submissive. Just the opposite, according to Genesis 3. That, um, uh, and yet, clearly, it says that you are to submit to him as you would when you be- gave your life to Jesus. Well, what was that like? Well, before I came to the Lord, I called all the shots. But when you became a believer, Jesus became your Lord. Now, in the same manner, he's asking you to do the same thing. By the way, gals, that's also impossible. But again, the the word is clear that that's what we're to do. Um, I'm gonna leave that there. Let's go back to, let's go back to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, and pick it up in verse six through nine. If anyone does not abide in me, and we read this is cast out of his branch and withered and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. We've covered that um, uh, already, so let's go on to verse seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Well, kinda. What do you mean, kinda? It says right here, let me expose a false doctrine here. And that is the whole name it and claim it thing and that there's power in your words. Jesus said, and they'll quote this verse to you, if you ask anything um, in my name, uh, let's see what verse is that again, of uh, verse six, seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask whatever you want. Whatever you ask for, and they will quote that scripture. Did Jesus say that or not? They come about that. Well, you can't take one scripture out of context and make a doctrine 
out of it if other places in the scriptures teach just the opposite. So let's keep it in context with the whole context of prayer and asking. And I'm going to have you turn at this time um, to the book of James chapter 4. So let's make our way back to James. And the idea here is praying but not having your prayers answered. So in James 4, we'll pick it up in verse 1 through 3. James says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. And the Lord say, ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open. You can quote that one. But now James is saying, okay, you ask but you don't receive. Why? Because you ask amiss that you would spend it on your own pleasures. I'm not going to give you something that's going to be harmful for you. What parent here and your two-year-old's first words that come out is saying, Mommy and Daddy, the rest of my life, I just want to eat candy for breakfast, lunch, and supper. And um, no, son, that's what you want, (laughs) but that's not what you're going to have. And so what parent um, gives their kid whatever they want? No. You're the one that says yes to this and no to that. And if we understand the principle as parents, how much more are we going to ask the Lord? And again, this is where the prosperity teachers come in. I heard of one of them say, if Jesus was alive today, he'd be driving a Royals Royce. And I go, are we talking about the same Jesus that said foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? Is this the same Jesus we're talking about when they ask him about paying taxes? And he says, give me a coin. Why do you suppose he said that? Because I don't think he had one. <laughs> the, the women that traveled with him, it says, took care of them. In other words, fed them out of their sustenance. It didn't say the Lord's sustenance. And so this whole, it's so ironic. That if we're to take on the mind of Christ, this whole prosperity thing is just the opposite and um, they're claiming that it's from the Lord. Most, most of the prosperity teachers have their own jets. And um, where Cirillo had his jet worked on out here at um, Streamway. And some of the guys in the church were working on it. And it was a gold plaque. I'm really getting sidetracked now. <laughs> There was, a, there was a gold plaque in there and it had all the name of the donators that made his $80 million Airstream possible. And, you know, they go about doing it saying, you need to sow your seed faith and it'll come back to you a hundredfold. And, um, and then you have the health issue that you have to be healthy, wealthy. And uh, now we're talking about prayer and Jesus is saying in John 15, ask whatever you want and I'll do it for you. Well, let's see what the rest of the Bible has to say about that subject. I think Paul had the ability to pray over people 
and they'd be healed. Sometimes it says just a shadow going by was healing people. So now his protege, Timothy, gets sick. Do you think for a second that Paul didn't pray for him? He did. Did he get healed? No. So he says, Timothy, you got a, you got a, a bug in your stomach. Take a little wine, and uh, that might help you out. Uh, maybe he had some bad water or whatever. My point is this. I believe Paul prayed for Timothy, and Timothy wasn't healed. I know he prayed for himself when he was buffeted with the thorn in his side. He prayed three times. And three times the Lord said, no, no, no. Paul, I'm keeping you purposely weak because in your weakness I'm strong. And you just came back from heaven. I'm talking 2 Corinthians 12. Can you imagine the books he could have written about heaven? (laughs) Made a fortune. So he sees these things, but because of the abundance of the revelation, I received a messenger of Satan who buffeted me. And I said, Lord, I want out. And he prayed three times. My point is simple. You can't take John, uh, let's go back to, um, let's go to Philippians from this point here. Philippians chapter four, a little bit to your left there. Clearly we've learned so far that we can't do anything without him. But when we look at Philippians 4, 10 through 13, we read verse 10, but I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned, I like this, I've learned in that whatever state I am in to be content. We are to be content whether we're abounding or not abounding. I know how to be abased, in other words, I know how to be poor. I know how to bound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And then what does it say? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. But with him, you can do all things. And I have to ask according to his will. Lord, I want to go to Israel. That's my prayer request. Lord, I would like a a different house. I'd like a different job. And it's okay to pray uh, that the Lord gives you your heart's desires as long as you finish the prayer the way he would, but not my will be done, your will. Because Lord, you know what's best for me. I don't. So I'm praying, but Lord, we'll do this. We're told in the scriptures, we'll do this or that and the next thing, Lord willing. So there's always the Lord willing at the end of it. And um, I thought this morning what would be a good Old Testament example of um, being in a place of abiding carries with it uh, the thought that we're always talking to him about what we should do and shouldn't do. And as I was thinking about it this week, the Lord reminded me of a story of Joshua. So I'm gonna have you turn back to the book of Joshua this morning and have you go to chapter five of Joshua. I'd like to give an Old Testament example of our study this morning about the importance of abiding 
in the Lord, talking to the Lord, getting direction from the Lord. So what we have in chapter five, uh, picking it up in verse 13, is they finally made it. Moses saw the promised land, but he wasn't allowed to enter the promised land. Joshua was the one who led them in to the promised land. Well, why couldn't Moses go in? It wrecks the picture. What picture? If you're taking notes, Gospel of John 1 verse 17 says, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You can't enter into God's promises by the law. It wrecks the picture. Moses couldn't take him in. But grace and truth came through Joshua, another name for Jesus. Who led them into God's promises? Joshua. So this is the night before they have their battle at Jericho. Let's pick it up in verse 13. Came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or you're from our adversaries? That's a pretty clear question, don't you think? No is the answer. (laughs) Well, what kind of an answer is that? That's not what I ask you. Are you for us or against us? No. Uh, (laughs) I'd be doing a big duh at that point. And he said, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, everywhere else we find angels and somebody falling down and worship him, the angel will immediately reprove that person and say, you don't worship me, not this time. He worshiped him and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to him, Joshua, take your sandals off, for the place that you stand is holy ground. This is what we call epiphanies, uh, Christophanies, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. And he's taking the title of the commander of the Lord's army. And in verse six, we'll read the first five verses of chapter six. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hands, its king and a mighty man of valor. At this point, the war's already over. The Lord says, I've given it to you. This is what I want you to do. Marching orders. You shall march around the city, all men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do for six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. And then it will come to pass when they make a loud blast with the ram's horn And when you hear the sound of the trumpet that all the people will shout with a great shout and the people shall go and the walls of the city will fall flat and the people shall go up every man straight before him. 
the rest of this chapter from six all the way up to 20 is an account of doing exactly that. But I might add, they couldn't say a word. They were to do this once a day for six days on the seventh day and all the time, no talking. And so imagine being on on the inside trying to figure all this out. And nobody's saying a word, but something's different here on the seventh day. They haven't, they haven't uh, done it once, they're doing it twice, they've done this thing seven times, and then all of a sudden, they shout for the first time. We read in verse 20, and so the people shouted. When the priests blew the trumpets, and it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout, and a wall fell down, and then the people went up to the gate, every man straight before him, and they took the city. They burned it, buried it to the ground. There was a time in Jericho, um, uh, because it's a Palestinian stronghold right now, uh, tourists can't go there, but in the early days we could used to go there. And we actually went and saw the remains of Jericho. And um, the walls that were at least the foundational part of it. They burned the city, and it was a complete victory. Where are you going with this, Dwight? Well, what happened with the victory in Jericho was communicated directly from the Lord to Joshua what to do, how to do it, marching instructions, very explicit, very clear. Good place for an amen. All right, so after this great victory, and um, we have chapter seven. Now chapter seven is the defeat of Ai. Um, The curse I'm gonna skip over because I'm concentrating on what they didn't do here. Verse two, now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth Avin, on the east side of Bethel and spoke to them saying, go and spy out the country. So he sent men and they went to Ai and checked it out. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, "Ah, don't let the people go up, but let, oh, two or 3,000 go up and attack. Uh, Don't weary all the people there. For the people of Ai, there's just a handful. So about 300 men went up from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as uh, Shebarim. They struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water, and Joshua tears his clothes, falls to his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their head, And Joshua said, alas, Lord God, why? I'm just gonna stop right there. Why? The answer to the question why and the difference between the victory at Jericho and the defeat at Ai is Joshua knew exactly what the Lord wanted him to do. He followed the instructions to the letter and as a result, he was victorious. Might I say he was abiding in the vine? and listening to the word. What is the one thing that sticks out when they take AI? No communication, 
They didn't ask the Lord about this. Um, My Bible says, acknowledge the Lord in all of your ways. They did not do it. Matter of fact, they were leaning upon their own strength. Hey, we checked it out. No big deal. Just just give us, just so many men, we'll take care of it, is the idea. We can pull this off. We don't, um, we don't need any instructions. And uh, as a result, their attitude is one of we can handle this. They didn't ask the Lord about it. So how could they win? Relying on their own strength. Don't you think the Lord let them lose that one? Oh, Peter, somebody's gonna deny me tonight. And Peter said, well, it sure isn't me. I would never do that. I'm strong. Nobody's gonna mess with you. Peter, tonight you're gonna deny me three times. You're gonna say you never knew me. I would never do that, Lord. Don't you know me that I would never do that? Peter, I do know you and you are gonna do that. And he allowed Peter to fail. And what I find interesting, he allowed him to fail in the area he thought he was the strongest in. And um, that's what the, when we get to John 20, that's what Peter is eventually gonna learn. I tell myself, how many times have you talked to yourself and said, when are you ever gonna learn? <laughs> when am I ever gonna learn to acknowledge the Lord in all my ways? And so we find this contrast um, here, and as we close things up this morning, let's go back to John chapter 15. Some closing thoughts. Let's look at the Lord's reasoning for tell us the importance of abiding in him, the true vine. And we'll read verses nine through 11. As the Father has loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. And if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now these things I have spoken to you, here's the reason, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. There was celebration and victory with Jericho, There was heartache and agony and why questions at AI. And the Lord wants us to live um, an abundant life. Um, And he, he says so. How do we accomplish that? By abiding in it. Well, guess what? John got it. John got it. And he would later write 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and also the book of Revelation. The first church that he deals with is Ephesus, a church that he helped plant. And the very thing that was most important to John, as we're reading here, is being abiding in the love of Christ. And so John got it, and I'm gonna have you turn to 1 John 2, and we'll just read a couple of verses from there in closing. We'll close with this this morning. 1 John chapter 2, we read in verse 1 here, my little children. You know that one time John and James were called sons of thunder? (laughs) You know what Galileans were noted for? Being toughies. 
roughnecks, having an attitude. They had their own accent. And they were called, Jesus called them sons of thunder because they wanted to call thunder down in some city. Real loving thing to do. He says, you guys don't understand anything about me. It's not my spirit. So he went from that. Can you see the cleansing process in John's life from that moment till he uses this terminology, little children, and rough and tough Simon Peter? When you read his first and second Peter, what's the word that he uses more than anything else? Precious. <laughs> rough and tough Peter say precious. Ten times in first John, he uses the words, my little children. My little children. These things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. This is also taking out of context, and universalists use it. Everybody's going to heaven. That's what the Pope is saying now. Jesus died for all the sins of the world. Allah is the same God as Jehovah. That's from the Pope, gang. And it's getting worse every single day. Another good place for an amen. We're headed towards a one world government and one world religion. And we're on a fast track for both. Now, by this, verse three, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth isn't in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. You know, the word perfected there is an ongoing process. It's being the cleansing process again. And by this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write you no new commandment, but an old commandment which you have heard from the beginning Uh, The old commandment is a word which you heard from the beginning. A new commandment I write to you, which things is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. And he who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Just one commandment. Just one commandment. But here's what's interesting about this one commandment. It says in Romans that love is the fulfillment of the law. Well, what does that mean? Well, if it says thou shalt not steal and you really love your neighbor's lawnmower, you're not going to steal it. (laughs) Why? Because I love the guy. Rather than steal it, I think I'll cut his grass for him. And by doing those actions, love fulfills the law when you are loving. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. No new commandments. If you guys get busy on loving on each other, that's what he's asking you to do. And people will see that and they will know, as the old song says, they'll know we are Christians by our love. 
What's, what is the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It is not speaking in tongues. Paul says, I'll show you a better gift. And all of 1 Corinthians 13 is all about love. Three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is good place to end it. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning as we continue through the gospel of John. Lord, so many times we're guilty of not acknowledging you in all of our ways. Forgive us, Lord. And thank you that you're faithful in the sanctification process. Lord, help us abide in you and continue. We pray you continue to wash us uh, as we study your word, being washed in the word, being washed in your blood. Uh, You're preparing for us as we read in Ephesians, a virgin bride that's being uh, cleansed as we travel through this world. So we thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. He uses the words, my little children. My little children. These things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. This is also taking out of context and universalists use it. Everybody's going to heaven. That's what the Pope is saying now. Jesus died for all the sins of the world. Allah is the same God as Jehovah. That's from the Pope, gang. And it's getting worse every single day. Another good place for an amen. We're headed towards a one world government and one world religion. And we're on a fast track for both. Now, by this, verse three, By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth isn't in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. You know, the word perfected there is an ongoing process. It's being the cleansing process again. And by this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write you no new commandment, but an old commandment which you have heard from the beginning. Uh, The old commandment is a word which you heard from the beginning. A new commandment I write to you, which things is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. And he who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Just one commandment, just one commandment. But here's what's interesting about this one commandment. It says in Romans that love is the fulfillment of the law. Well, what does that mean? Well, if it says thou shalt not steal and you really love your neighbor's lawnmower, you're not going to steal it. (laughs) Why? Because I love the guy. Rather than steal it, I think I'll cut his grass for him. And by doing those actions, love fulfills the law. 
when you are loving. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. No new commandments. If you guys get busy on loving on each other, that's what he's asking you to do. And people will see that and they will know, as the old song says, they'll know we are Christians by our love. What's, what is the evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It is not speaking in tongues. Paul says, I'll show you a better gift. And all of 1 Corinthians 13 is all about love. Three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is good place to end it. Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning as we continue through the gospel of John. Lord, so many times we're guilty of not acknowledging you in all of our ways. Forgive us, Lord. And thank you that you're faithful in the sanctification process. Lord, help us abide in you and continue. We pray you continue to wash us uh, as we study your word, being washed in the word, being washed in your blood. Uh, You're preparing for us as we read in Ephesians, a virgin bride that's being uh, cleansed as we travel through this world. So we thank you for your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.